0: The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: If you were to create a character for a film from central casting, of uh, the old Southern senator, the old Southern politician, you'd probably come up with Trent Lott, uh, who's a garrulous storytelling uh, dealmaker and uh, served Mississippi for three decades as in the House and the Senate, and then was the Senate majority leader. Today, he'd be the poster child in the Republican Party for the establishment Republican. He and Senator Tom Daschle, his counterpart as Democratic leader in his years in the Senate, just wrote a book called Crisis Point about gridlock in Washington and what we do about it. And when I sat down with him the other day, he had many thoughts on the presidential race, on the Supreme Court battle, and how we fix our politics. This episode of The Axe Files is brought to you by Stamps.com. Senator Trent Lott, uh, you grew up around politics, didn't you? You, uh, I uh, read somewhere that you're both... both grandfathers That's were right. were
2: political office holders back in Mississippi. What'd you, what, what do you remember of that? Well, my, my grandfather, Lot was a supervisor, county supervisor. And I understand he even was president of the Mississippi boards of supervisors. Uh, and then my mother's father, Ed Watson, uh, was a justice of the peace. And he rode the circuit on a horse, uh, having, uh, you know, holding court. Uh, he carried a thirty eight pistol, a lemon squeezer, and, and a holster uh, they could reach in under his coat and administer just justice. to enforce his rule yes and uh i have that that uh, <laughs> pistol and then my uncle that served in world war ii was uh, at the battle of the bulge Arnie watson was a state senator for 12 years so i grew up around it i must confess you know i didn't really think a lot about it I, some of my earliest memories uh go back to when i was handing out push cards particularly for my uncle Both my grandfathers, to my memory, had had basically were ending their political career or already out of it in case of my grandfather Watson. But uh, as years went by, and particularly once I started working for a Democrat, Congressman Calmer from Mississippi, uh, then I started realizing that maybe it was in my genes, that I had been around it all my life. I, I never felt uh any do they have races did they have contests back oh yeah then? in fact my grandfather a lot uh, was a supervisor for 12 years and then he was defeated by another lot that's when you know you have too right? damn many lots uh, <laughs> a cousin and uh, a he lot went of to, lots yeah huh? he went to one of the other cousins that he found out had voted for uh, the one that beat him he <laughs> said why did you vote uh, my our cousin here and he said well because you didn't ask me <laughs> plus he gave me a pint of whiskey <laughs> so those were the days. So but, y- you can learn a few lessons from that, huh? Well, the best lesson I did learn uh, from uh, my grandfather Lot was that particular thing. He uh, told me as I was gravitating toward getting into politics before he died, he said, "Remember to always ask for their vote, and they all vote the pocketbook." Mm-hmm. And uh,
1: probably that was not bad. Uh- That was not bad insight when you
2: became a leader as well in the Congress. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, You know, I guess I learned from them that, uh, you know, one of my mottos when I was in the Senate, uh, the most important vote is not the last vote, it's the next vote. So I tried to leave all my colleagues, Democrat and Republican, every day where even if they disagreed or didn't vote with me, I could come back the next day and say, how about this one? That particularly applied to John McCain. Yes, because you know John wouldn't wouldn't always stay hitched, and I'd have to <laughs> I'd get mad at him, and he'd get mad at me, but. Uh- we had a, a friendship. Actually, his family lived uh, next uh, in the adjoining farm from uh, my family in Mississippi. No kidding. The McCain family is from Mississippi.
1: So you uh, you guys served in the House together. We did. Yeah, yeah. Before you got to the Senate, let me, before we get to uh, before we move the story forward, I, I I wanted to ask you about Ole Miss. Yeah. You know, a lot has been made of the fact that you were a
2: cheerleader there, but that yeah. was kind of a political office, wasn't it? It was clearly a political office. Well, you you ran for it like you'd run for president of the student body, which I did. Subsequently uh, now they're they're athletes. I mean, yes. they come out there doing cartwheels and flips and, and picking up their their partners on their shoulders. You didn't, do, partner, you didn't do that stuff, and huh? n- no, my, I I used <laughs> to tell my partner now, Amy, when I have to pick you up, you got to jump, honey, because I can't get you up on my own strength. And <laughs> we had a great relationship, but you know, I, I, I've i always been proud of that. Dad Cochran was an old Miss. Cheerleader, I heard that. Yeah, and John Stennis was a Mississippi State cheerleader. Which I guess just proves that all you need to be successful in Mississippi politics is a loud mouth. Or a, and 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 you get a bullhorn with the job. Oh yeah, right? that's right. But yeah. uh I all my life uh I have been in a, in some respects a cheerleader, a cheerleader for my alma mater, a cheerleader for my state. Cheerleader for my party, cheerleader for my country, and I don't want to apologize for that. So you were there when James Meredith uh,
1: integrated? That's right. Yeah, Ole Miss. Yeah, what, right. what do you? You know, we come from different places. Yeah. I was a, I was a little kid in New York City. Yeah. That was viewed, you know, as a heroic
2: day in, in history. Uh, I suspect it was received differently. Oh yeah, it was obviously. You know, it was a very difficult uh, thing, uh, basically a riot. And some people were shot uh, that night, and uh, I actually, uh, you know, had to do some interviews afterward about what happened. But uh, I actually got a national award from my fraternity, Sigma Nu fraternity, for uh, what I did that night. I spent that night sending runners over to the dormitories to get the Sigma News out of the dorm and bring them over to the house to try to protect them and keep them out of that and uh, none none of our uh brothers were implicated in any way in that but it, yeah and my wife was there in a, in a uh the women's dormitory and she had uh, tear gas uh, with you know blowing into the dormitory it was a, it was a terrible night but uh you know it's typical i think of people after that night, he was on the campus. He went into the classes. We saw him around the campus. Uh, he was, uh, yeah, first of all, he's a very interesting character. And, uh, you know, he even became a Republican. You know that. Uh, and I've had a good relationship with him, uh, all the years since.
1: Mm hmm. He, uh, the,
2: the,
1: it just seems like such a, that was such a, uh, Transformational period in the South, and it was reflected by the fact that you went to work for Congressman Palmer He was a Democrat.
2: That's right. Yeah,
1: you ran for his seat, right? And you ran as a Republican.
2: I did. In fact, uh, he served forty years, and when he announced he was going to retire, I waited a couple of weeks, and then I went in and said, Mr. Palmer I can't presume to succeed. You know, take your place, but I'm going to run to succeed you, and I think you know I'm I'm going to run as a Republican. And, uh, now, probably all of your relatives were Democrats. All of them were Democrats. Right. I, I was 21 years old before I met my first live Republican. I was on the Ole Miss campus, and they tried to get me to join the College of Republicans. And I said, you got to be kidding. I'm not joining a group like that. But <laughs> uh, I had started thinking about it when I was practicing law in my hometown of Pascagoula, Mississippi. And then when I came to work for Mr. Palmer, if you'd have asked me at, uh, that, when I first came to work for him, I'd have probably said, well, I'm, I'm a Mississippi Democrat, whatever that is. But by August of 1968, my first year, I crossed the Rubicon, and I said, you know what, Uh, philosophically, I am a Republican. And so was my wife. She influenced me, too, I must confess.
1: Well, the South crossed the Rubicon as well. You know, Lyndon Johnson said when he signed the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and so on that he felt like he was ceding the South in certain
2: ways right. the republican right. party uh, wasn't that the line of demarcation well it was beginning to happen already uh you know uh, goldwater in 1964 uh, carried my state by like 82 percent of the vote or something uh but it goes back beyond that i one of the most vivid political discussions i remember as a kid was in 1952 when i was about 11 My mother and father got in an argument over the presidential election. My father, being a good Democrat, like his family had always been, was for Stevenson. My mother was for Eisenhower. And I was really a little taken aback that my mother was pushing back and arguing or saying, I'm voting for Eisenhower now. There was a reason for it. Her brother that served in World War II, had served under Eisenhower. Nor- and, did you, was he at Normandy? Yeah. Uh-huh. No, he wasn't at Normandy, but uh-huh. he was at the Battle of the Bulge. Uh-huh. And he was on 101st Airborne. I see. But uh, he was for Eisenhower, even though he was always elected as a Democrat. Uh, so it was, it was beginning to happen. This was the guy who was a state senator? Yeah, the one who was a state senator, yeah. And by the way, when he ran the first time in 1952 for uh, the state senate, his campaign chairman was Joe McCain, John's uncle. Is that right? Yeah. But uh, so it was beginning to happen, but uh, clearly, you know, uh, Lyndon Johnson escalated it, uh, but it still didn't really get going until. uh, Well,
1: Nixon played it well. He played
2: it well, but. uh, And then uh, we had a group of uh, people that uh, were determined we were going to change the dynamics in, in the late 70s. A lot of it was led by Jack Kemp. Uh, had a different attitude and Newt Gingrich and basically their motto or what they were saying to us, the, the young rebels that we were with the with our hair blow dry haircut, they accused us of was that we had to change our language that all Republicans talked about was root canal budget problems. We never talked positively about what you can do to help the country and to help people and help with infrastructure. And we changed our language and we started making real progress in the late 70s. And, of course, that exploded with Reagan. Reagan, yeah. But the the Republican Revolution didn't really come to a head until the 90s. But race was a big fault line. Well, it was early on in in the 60s. You know what we went through in the civil rights era and the, uh, the Meredith thing and, you know, the integration of schools. But uh, it was... It was a lot different on a personal basis and a local level than you might think. My hometown of Pascagoula, Mississippi, integrated our schools early, without a bobble, and but it was a lot more difficult in other areas and in other states. So that was part of it, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, in my case, uh, it was, uh, you know, I, my whole family was always uh, conservative philosophically and particularly economically. Um, I didn't really think a whole lot about it until I got in to law school Uh, i was always involved in campus politics but you know i was running for cheerleader i ran for president student body at Ole miss and lost by 31 votes but i learned so many good lessons in that loss i hadn't lost one since yeah yeah (laughs) what did you learn well i learned uh number one uh that uh if you know that you're going to put somebody in your cabinet it's not, you know, uh, unfair to advise them. And the bottom line was, I had a guy was I was very close to. He was going to be my chief of staff, but I didn't want to tell him. I thought that was inappropriate. I wound up losing his fraternity, which was enough to tip the election. I see.
1: All right. So that's so. You, this propelled you to a lifetime of victory. After uh-
2: <laughs> well, uh, you know, if you can survive Ole Miss politics, you can survive any politics.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's so uh, you get you got you were there during as you said the Reagan revolution. Reagan's being invoked a lot. Oh, yeah. uh, Today. Uh, But the thing, you know, and Reagan is viewed as a, a you know, ideological beacon. But Reagan was pretty
2: pragmatic, wasn't he? He was very pragmatic. People don't realize that. I mean, all this fussing now about immigration reform. Uh, You know, the Simpson-Mazzoli immigration reform was a a Reagan initiative. I remember, though, uh, about a year after that, I think we passed that in 86. Which granted citizenship. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But it also was going to secure the border. Mm -hmm. And after one of the leadership meetings, that was one of the things he did, by the way, that President Obama has not done, I think, to his peril. He met... Every week Congress is in session on Tuesday morning at 9 o'clock, we met with President Reagan. And quite often it was bipartisan. But after one of those meetings, I think it was in 1987, I went around that cabinet room table to see him and I said, Mr. President, I supported uh, Simpson-Mazzoli. I was the whip in the House. I counted the votes. But I said, Mr. President, we're not fulfilling one of the commitments and that was to secure the border. We need to use modern capabilities and technologies, blimps, helicopters, a lot of ways we can do this. And he looked at me so strangely like he didn't know what I was talking about. And I've always wondered, uh, did he just not agree? Was he not aware of it? Or was he beginning to have mm-hmm. some early problems? But, uh, you know, uh, yeah, he was pragmatic on that. He was pragmatic on, on the, the budget agreements. Uh, uh, he didn't insist on every uh, dotted I. In fact, he's I think he's quoted as saying he'd be glad to take 80% of something and come back later and try to get the rest of it. He worked with Tip O'Neill, right. which is a he was as partisan a Democrat as you'd get. However, he was a fair speaker. In fact, I've asked Chris Matthews, who was working with Tip O'Neill at the time, why did Tip actually allow the president's budget and tax provisions to be voted on in the House? He could have blocked them. But he thought the president of the United States was entitled to have his uh, positions or his issues voted on. Now, he also didn't think that we could come up with the votes, but he allowed those votes to come to the floor, and we beat him repeatedly. In fact, uh, even though we never had more than 100 and maybe 192 Republicans, we always had to get 30, 40, or 50 Democrats, we won every key vote for six years. Now, the wheel started coming off in 87 and 88, but no, he was realistic. So the the House it, was different
1: then, too, because oh yeah. you had Southern you had Southern Democrats. Oh, yeah. You had moderate, oh yeah,
2: oh, yeah we Democrats. Had a- so you had a pool of people from, yeah. for who you could. Oh yeah. In fact, I I had a my uh, deputy chief of staff to my whip organization was Tom Leffler from Texas. My instruction to Tom is Tom, uh, don't worry about the Republicans. I'll take care of that. You get over there and work on the Democratic side because you can talk to them. You can talk to people like Joe Wagoner of, of uh, Louisiana and Sonny Montgomery, Mississippi, and Charlie Stenholm of Texas. Those were so-called bow Democrats. So I knew every vote that came along pretty closely to how many Democrats we were going to get. And there was a pool of at least 40 of them that were conservative or moderate. That would vote with us and on on the key budget votes and defense votes. MX missile deployment of uh, missile in in Europe, they were with us. You went on to be the Republican leader in the uh, Senate.
1: Tom Daschle was your counterpart right. on the Democratic side. Um, do you uh, it, it, you guys are friends? And you just wrote a book called Crisis Point right. about the state of affairs right now. Right. How uh,
2: how different
1: are things today than they were
2: then incredibly different and david i think you know i've been watching politics for close to 50 years pretty closely i've never seen it as bad as it is right now across the board uh the gridlock uh, the lack of communication uh but the people are different the times are different and the media is different elections campaigns are different you know this uh Uh, data analysis and the targeting. I mean, uh, you and Barack Obama mastered that and did a very good job. So it's very different. But there are a lot of basic things that leaders are not doing now.
1: We need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, stamps.com.
3: These days, you can get practically everything on demand. Like this podcast, listen whenever you want, when it's convenient for you. So why are you still going to the post office and dealing with their limited hours? When you can get postage on demand with stamps.com. Anything you can do at the post office, you can now do right from your desk with stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. And unlike the post office, stamps.com never closes. So you can get postage whenever you need it, 24-7. Plus, you'll even get special postage discounts with stamps.com you can't get at the post office. Right now, sign up for stamps.com and use the promo code AXFILES for this special offer a four week trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Go to stamps.com and, before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in AXFILES. That's stamps.com and be sure to enter the promo code AXFILES.
1: So, uh, Trent Lott, Senator Lott, former leader, Uh, co-author of a book, Crisis Point, on the state of affairs in our uh, politics and particularly in the Congress. You were talking about the things that leaders did back then when you and Tom Daschle were working together as a Republican and Democratic leader that aren't being done now.
2: Well, number one, we communicated a lot every day. I had a red phone on my desk, and when I picked it up, it rang on his desk, and that was the only place it rang. It gave us quick communication, but it also gave us a way to talk without having to run the gauntlet of the media, which was all lined up out in the hall between his office and mine. It also gave us a way to get around our own staffs, because a lot of times they didn't want us talking, because they knew Tom and I would make a deal, which is now, you know, a four letter dirty word. word. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, so we communicated a lot. Uh, we had agreements, number one, that I, I wouldn't surprise him and he wouldn't surprise me. And if I did something where I kind of overplayed my hand, I'd go to his office and say, Hey, Tom, I'm sorry about that. Let's see if we can't work through it. That was one thing. But because of that, we developed a chemistry, which they don't have now. I respected him and his positions, even though philosophically he was a, you know, liberal prairie Democrat and I was a Southern conservative Republican. But I understood his positions and I respected that. I trusted him, and through it all, we actually became friends. But I found Tom also, in in addition to just being a decent guy, Tom was a leader. He he and I both sometime at had to to sell your caucuses. We We did, we did repeatedly. We'd have to go to them on on things like the Patriot Act or how we were going to run a 50-50 Senate. I almost lost my leadership position over the deal I made, the agreement I made with Tom, how we were going to get the Senate divided 50-50 to operate. They felt mm-hmm. like I gave too much. What I did was acknowledge it was 50-50. He all got in trouble because they felt like he made too good a deal with me too quickly. But so, now uh, members of Congress feel like, if they
1: support what you call deals, yeah. compromises, yeah. that that will be fatal to them politically, yeah. that they're going to be taken out by the base of their party.
2: Yeah, well, I talked to some of the, uh, you know, the hell no caucus types uh, now that we have in Washington. You know, and, and the, the Senate is, is pulled apart. There used to be a middle. There's almost no middle now. The Republicans have moved to the right and uh, the Democrats have moved to the left. It's very hard to get anything done. But I've talked to people, including Ted Cruz. One night I, I told him, I said, look, I know you you don't like the way things are done, and I know your tactics uh, are, are you know causing some problems. But let me uh, ask you this in terms of being opposed to what went on. When Tom and I were in leadership uh, and Clinton was president, here's the things we got done. Welfare reform, tax cut, balanced budgets, a surplus, safe drinking water, portability of insurance, telecommunications reform, raised military pay. Now, what among those is not conservative and we're not good for America? and what is his answer well he said oh that's really yeah maybe i ought to come talk with you uh <laughs> he's I, busy I, I, I haven't seen him since yes but that was my point point. one of the but, points, but, but
1: but let me ask you a question do you think he it, my impression is that he was setting himself up for oh. a presidential campaign he, he, and that yeah. by being in yeah. as you said but by being the leader of the hell no caucus he was creating a constituency yeah, he, for himself. he came
2: here intending right away to run for president mm-hmm. and he's not prepared to be president but he's 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 one of the finalists. Here. Oh, he is a finalist, and it's amazing. I mean, uh, my own son told me just this past Sunday, you know, Dad, you've always been able to pick the winners pretty good. And when you didn't pick the winners, you could predict what was going to happen. But, boy, you missed it this year.
1: Well, you know, I, I had uh, Eric Erickson, who's a yeah, I know outspoken Eric. guy, uh, on the right uh, on on this podcast uh, the other day, and he talked about the fact that Republicans in Congress had broken their promises to Republicans to stop Obamacare and do a number of other things that didn't happen, essentially to obstruct the Obama program to stop the president from moving forward, and that that was why there's an open rebellion in the Republican Party that uh, not just Cruz, but particularly Donald Trump, has uh, now seized uh, seized on. Is he right about that?
2: Well, uh, I might have handled it differently. Uh, what I would think they maybe should have done early on is to had a uh, vote or two to repeal Obamacare, and then they should have gone after it, targeting it and putting it those targeted uh, uh, tweaks to what had passed. In bills it would be uh, hard or almost impossible for for the president to uh, to veto it now. But let me show you the irrationality of what they they were saying. Who thought that the threat of shutting down the government or shutting down the government uh, to make President Obama sign a bill repealing Obamacare was ever going to happen? He would veto it, and then what? It was, Don't look at me. I didn't think it was. I, I, the tactics were unworkable and unrealistic. It was not going to But happen. that's
1: the point, isn't it, that that, was, that was, this was held out as a possibility yeah. and it
2: never was a possibility. And, and a lot of people bought that. It never was a possibility. Uh, look, they have checked the Obama administration in a lot of ways, big and small, but uh you know and, and in the senate i used to say it's it's easy to block things it's hard to pass things
1: and isn't that the
2: way the system was constructed sure. absolutely absolutely you have to be a real leader and you've got to be a visionary of, of where how you want to lead to get things done in the senate they don't do that now, and, and they don't communicate with, across the aisle. Uh, Tom Daschle and I advocate, you know, the, some of the biggest decisions we made, we made in a joint caucus, Democrats and Republicans, in the old Senate chamber. Uh, you know, after the anthrax attack, we met in the Senate dining room and talked about the threat what we are going to do with it how we were going to help each other. We even had the temerity to meet with House leaders on occasion. That's a novel idea, yes now they invite each other over for a cup of anthrax, <laughs> yeah, you know, I uh, think so uh,
1: so let me let me ask you though uh in this light um, the decision of uh Senator McConnell to uh to not take up the president's supreme court indor- uh, nomination to not meet with the, the nominee and to not hold hearings uh it really sounds like based on what you've described, that is not in the tradition that you Believe it?
2: Well, I probably uh, would have handled it uh, differently. My disposition, after talking with my, my predecessor, John Stennis, and with Thad Cochran, my senior senator colleague when I was in the Senate, my, my attitude, particularly on the Supreme Court, was that elections do have consequences, uh, uh, sometimes bad. Uh, and I was tried to lean toward being supportive of the president's nominees. Democrat or Republican. I voted for Ruth Gater, uh, Bader Ginsburg. In fact, I think I voted for most members. And, of-
1: and, and all the Democrats voted for uh,
2: Justice Scalia. Uh, yeah. Uh, I did vote against one of the members of the Supreme Court because I thought he had a, a conflict of interest. So if they were qualified by education experience, demeanor, and had no other side problem, my predisposition was to be for them. Now, now when, it's, when I'm going to turn a little partisan, the problem is— that, in my opinion, in the opinion of a lot of Republicans, and certainly in the opinion apparently of McConnell, so many of Obama's nominees have been so bad and so far left that the amount, the, the trust factor is not there. Uh, was it, you know, wise to jump out there the way uh, the leader did? Uh, you know, time will tell. Yeah. Don't you
1: think that we're almost, we, there's almost a year left in the administration, the notion that a president shouldn't appoint a fill on the death of a justice. This isn't a justice. Sometimes justices resign and they do it in a strategic sure. way to yeah. give a president a chance. Then you can make the argument, well, this was a political play. Justice Scalia passed away. There's a vacancy on the court. Isn't it hard to make a straight face case to the American people that we're we just, we're the president's term essentially ends after three years, and we're not going to consider anything. That, that's
2: a you know legitimate argument. I don't quite uh, buy it. This is a this is a very critical appointment. Uh, this appointment could shift the balance of the Supreme Court uh, from five four one way to five four the other way for years. Uh, and um, you know that that you're a, a problem. you're a you're a student
1: of the law. Um, did just where in the Constitution does
2: it say that that in the final year, if you've got a, no, a, it doesn't. It doesn't say that. But remember this: the president just uh, nominates; he doesn't appoint, right? And then Congress has the Senate has the right to vote yes, vote no, or not vote at all.
1: But do you think they should hold hearings? Do you think they should consider it?
2: The, it depends on who he comes up with. Mm-hmm. Uh, if he, so if, if he
1: comes it, up with a nominee who you you consider mainstream, well, if he, someone, you know, I mean, you've got people on the bench who they've confirmed to the yeah. second highest court in the land. By
2: 96 to if he nothing, comes up with a nominee nothing. that has already been vetted and uh, was uh, supported by all or almost all of the senators, uh, with the, who would have uh, somewhat of a centrist view, uh, you know, they, the president could come up with somebody that uh, that they would want to consider. And I don't know that uh, Chuck Grassley will will refuse in the end to even have a hearing. It's it'll, tough it'll for him, isn't it? He's running for re-election. Well, yeah, but he is Chuck Grassley, and uh, <laughs> in Iowa, and he's revered. There. Yes, he is. And, he is. There's no uh, doubt about but, that. But uh, you know, Chuck is. <clears throat> you know, Chuck marches to his own drummer. Um, if the president comes up with somebody that's that's credible and and a little bit more mainstream or moderate, I I wouldn't be surprised to see Chuck give him a hearing. It feels like some of these
1: folks. Uh, who are up for re- you know you got a bunch of senators I know when you're the leader you got to worry about getting people reelected you got yeah. a bunch of senators this time blue state Republicans running in Democratic states Republican senators then it kind of put they're sort of caught between the base and the swing voter on this one
2: aren't they uh- Yeah they could they could be. Um, uh, but you know, I never, I, I used to get disgusted with senators are always whining about, Oh, no, don't make me vote on that. That's so <laughs> so bad. Or it come to me on a Thursday night and say, well, I've got to fly all the way to California. Don't make us vote on Friday. Look, that's the kind of thing that Tom Dashiell and I recommend in our book. Number one, they ought to bring their families here. The job is in Washington. The job is not in Pascagoula, Mississippi or Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Uh, they should, uh, not sleep in their offices and, uh, you know, over 40 house members sleep in their offices. That's a new form of public housing that I don't think is very attractive. They should work five days a week, uh, you know, of three weeks a month because you can't have hearings but and But you know that the, this notion oversight. of bringing
1: the family here, I hear this all the time, which is in the old days, people's family, you know, if your kids are playing soccer together or football or baseball, uh, you've got a different relationship.
2: Absolutely. But,
1: but – in, in uh, you, you saw uh, Senator Lugar
2: uh, lose his seat because he didn't have a, his residence in Indiana. And that was a mistake. First of all, it was a mistake for him to lose his seat because he was a very thoughtful conservative leader, by the way. As the whip in the House and the Senate, I always looked at votes. I studied. He had a conservative voting record. He wasn't a moderate, but he did make a mistake of not having a home. I kept my home back in Pascagoula, Mississippi, because I knew if I sold that house, they would say, "See, see, he's gone. He's gone to Washington. He's not one of us." Now, it's difficult on what a, a congressman or a senator makes right. to maintain two sets of houses, two sets of taxes, and all of that. But, but that, a lot, of, a lot of senators are do did yeah. pretty well before they got here these days. Well, you know, but uh, some of us, I came to Washington when I was twenty six. Yeah. I uh, came from a poor blue collar family. My dad was a shipyard pipe and a right. union member. Yeah. My mother, school teacher. I didn't inherit anything. Yeah. It was tough, uh, paying for two house notes, uh, and uh, saving money to educate my kids in public schools, uh, all their lives. And, uh, but uh, I'd probably, probably be good to
1: have a few more people in the Senate who come from that kind of background.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And but, you know, uh, my my partner now in life is a former Senator John Bro, a Democrat from Louisiana. Uh, we lived on the same street in Annandale, Virginia. Uh, his wife, and my wife are best friends. Our kids grew up together. They were in each other's weddings. They played kick the can in the neighborhood. There were three Democrats lived on one side of the street and two Republicans on the other. We were all friends. And when I would go to John on an issue, John Bro, and say, John, tell me how you see this and tell me how you think we might could package this where maybe we can get this done, he'd give me an honest, straightforward answer. I don't see that happening now. And by the way, this book that Tom and I did, it's not about, oh, look what we did. It's really about, look, we learned a lot of tough yeah. lessons. We, you know, We had the impeachment of William Jefferson Clinton. Yes. Which was not easy. I remember that. But we came out of, we did our constitutional responsibility. And when it was over, most people felt like we did a credible job. And to Bill Clinton's credit, the Thursday after I voted to remove him from office for two articles of impeachment, he called me on a Thursday to say, you got that bill up there we're working on. Can we can we get this going? Never mentioned the impeachment trial. Never mentioned how I voted. We went forward. Mm-hmm. So we, we learned a lot of lessons. We're uh, talking to... Uh, Former
1: uh, Senator, Senate Leader Trent Lott, Republican leader, uh, and we will be back in a minute.
3: For most of us, the desire to learn doesn't stop after college. That's the motivation behind the new video learning service called The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus gives you unlimited access to a huge library of The Great Courses lecture series in many subjects, including history, science, cooking, and so much more, taught by top professors. And now they're giving Axfile listeners the opportunity to watch their popular course, The Fundamentals of Photography, and hundreds of other courses, for free. Filmed in partnership with the National Geographic, The Fundamentals of Photography provides valuable techniques to enhance your photography skills. Learn how to use tools like lighting, framing, and composition to take more meaningful photos. And with The Great Courses Plus, you can watch as many different lectures as you want, anytime, anywhere. The Axe File listeners can watch hundreds of their courses, including Fundamentals of Photography, a $220 value, for free. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash axfiles. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash axfiles. We're back with Trent Lott, talking about
1: how politics have changed since uh, his days in the Senate and the Congress, and uh, how they've changed within the Republican Party. So as we sit here today... Donald Trump is the presumptive nominee of the Republican Party. You know, there's still a process to go through, but he seems very likely to be uh, the nominee. You said earlier that you thought Ted Cruz wasn't qualified to be president of the United States. What about Donald Trump?
2: (laughs) I'm for Kasich. Uh, And I'm for John Kasich. I have been from almost the beginning. I thought he made a mistake by waiting a little bit late to get in. Can he,
1: by the way, Kasich, uh, can he— get to where he wants to go. It seems like he's trying to leap on from rock to rock in a kind of roaring creek
2: and that it's pretty hard to do. Well, first of all, he's run a principled, positive campaign campaign. He's refused to get in the mud. Maybe that's his problem. Uh-huh. Well, look, I- I'm for him because he's qualified. Uh, when I was the leader in the Senate, he was chairman of the Budget Committee. He was a guy, you know, Clinton and Newt Gingrich like to take credit for the uh, the balanced budget agreement. Actually, it was John Kasich and Pete Domenici that had more to do with it. I mean, he has done it. He was on armed services. He was a reformer on the Armed Services Committee. He's been in the private sector, and he's been a successful governor. Seemed to me like that's what we should uh, be looking for now. But you know
1: what's an interesting thing about it? He's been a successful governor and he's done those other things in part because he has been willing to compromise. He does understand how to get deals done.
2: That isn't what's selling in the Republican Party today. Well, uh, you know, you, you've got two alternatives in our uh, Republican form of government. Uh, you can work with your colleagues on both sides of all of all kinds of philosophical stripes to get things done for the country, or you can get nothing done. Uh, for instance, Republicans should be for infrastructure, lanes, planes, ports, and harbors, water, and sewer. Yeah. We, our infrastructure in America is collapsing. Right. Now, the good thing about infrastructure is, now, I didn't like uh, the president's uh, uh, program that he had, uh, so-called ready uh, shovel-ready projects, because too much of the money was just given away. What I want is infrastructure projects that create jobs, improve the quality of life, And when you get through, you've got something. You've got a bridge or an airport or a safe drinking water system. I think
1: you on this one, I think uh, you probably would have found a ready uh, partner at the White House. I think all these years he's been trying to get the Republicans to join him on this. But it's gotten caught up in this Grover
2: Norquist spending thing where nobody wants to, you know. But look, one of the things that disappoints me is how little the candidates on both sides, but particularly Republicans, talk about, okay, jobs. You know, how do we create jobs? How do we deal with the budget deficits? How do we deal with the fact that we got corporations leaving? But people America? think Donald Trump knows how to create jobs. Well, uh, I guess he's created some jobs and lost some jobs. Uh, but you know, in the, in the Kasich f- fashion, uh, you know, I, I have chosen to try not to be, uh, that critical of all these other candidates that, that, that ran. We had too many that ran, number one. We had too many that stayed in too long. Uh, you know. That's favored Trump, hasn't it? it has no question hmm. about it you know i i like a marco rubio but you know i really was. what do you think
1: about the latest turn with rubio though he i don't like be, it i uh, think it's picking hurting up him. on the trump
2: nah. act I, I thought I, I just looked like kids in a uh, scu- schoolyard fight i i couldn't stand the last debate i don't like uh, you know i don't like a lot of what trump says i think it's inappropriate uh i you know if i had said some of the things he said i'd been run out of town on a rail but every time he says some of those things his numbers seem to go up yeah, But here's one thing that Republicans and Democrats better both think about. This has been a bizarre election. You know, when Bernie Sanders, running as an admitted socialist, got, has done as well as he has done. And when Donald Trump, with all the things that he has said and done, leading the Republicans, what what are the people telling us? I do think that there's a lot of angst out there in America. Yeah, there is. Uh, uh, the, the nervousness. And, and even, yes, I don't like it, but, you know, anger. Uh, people, you know, Republicans mad that they didn't feel like the Republican Congress did what they're supposed to. They didn't do enough to stop Obama. And, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, resentment about, uh, you know, Obama's, style of leadership and all of that. But, uh, you know, I don't want a candidate or, uh, an, uh, office holder to just curse the darkness. I want them to tell me how we're going to get to back to the light of day. And that's why I still think Casey, uh, if he could carry Ohio <laughs> and Michigan, and Massachusetts and Vermont, and uh, do pretty well in a, a couple of southern states like maybe maybe Mississippi. Um, you know, uh, hang in there, and we may wind well, up going to the convention yet. Yes, well. <laughs> yes, well, you don't believe we, that, do you? Well,
1: I mean, you know, if, ele- <laughs> if elephants could fly, I yeah, guess. That's is, true. Is, but yeah. uh, the the but this past uh, week, as we sit here, Rubio has said Trump. Trump's nomination would destroy the Republican Party. You've had Republican senators say they wouldn't support Trump if he were uh,
2: the nominee. Can the
1: party hold together if Donald Trump is the nominee?
2: I don't know. Well, you know, uh, so much has happened this year, I could never have prophesied, and who knows how this will will turn out now, Um, but... You know, I I don't like the style of campaign we're seeing. I mean, uh, I think it's uh, not good for for uh, Rubio to be talking about his spray tan. And I mean, it, it's, it's, it's how tall you are, or how short you are, or how much water you drink, or whether you sweat or not—is that the best how big your can? hands are? Was the one yeah, I it, heard this morning? I mean, oh, jeez! I mean, now it's we're just getting into ridiculous. anatomical yeah. put downs. So I don't know how it's going to uh, play out. I don't think we've seen the. The last of the democratic uh, uh, situation, either.
1: Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I think it'll clarify in the in the in the coming weeks on both sides. We talked a little bit about the issue of race before. You got caught up in it in an unfortunate way because you made uh, what what I'm sure you felt was an innocent comment yeah. about Strom Thurmond, yeah. saying if he had been elected yeah. when he ran on the Dixiecrat line, that things would have been different. Uh, and it cost you your
2: leadership position. It did. It did. You know, uh, you gotta be careful in Washington to keep your skirts clean financially and, uh, with your, your spouse. Uh, but also you, you, need to watch what you say. And, uh, it was an, a, a celebratory event. Bob Dole was there. He had a, a Marilyn Monroe lookalike that came in and sat on Strom's lap. And in the, the, the spirit of the event, his 100th birthday, I got too carried away. What I knew about Strom Thurmond as a member of the Senate, what I saw was somebody that was chairman of the Armed Services Committee and did a really good job there. He was a guy that stood in the center of, uh, uh, aisle of the Senate, gave a passionate st- a speech about criminal law reform, and he was supported in that effort by Joe Biden. He was a good senator. Yeah, but the, I'm not trying to revisit yeah. that
1: at, at all. I'm not yeah. Yeah. condemning you here. But what I, The reason I ask is because there have been a lot of things said lately, uh, Trump in particular, uh, and the other day, uh, you know, he was asked about David Duke and the Klan. He said, "Well, I don't know about them," and uh, and uh, you know, it took a while to say, "I, I don't really want that." Well, and I think he support. said that
2: he re- repudiated what they stood for after a while. Uh, after a while, yeah. I, you know, I don't know
1: what. But uh is is that a mistake uh, to uh, to not strongly repudiate that and the language about um, about
2: Mexicans and so on and. Well, I I I think that the the discourse has gotten uh, too coarse. Uh, you know, uh, the, the negative uh, comments or the way they're presented, uh, I I I would prefer that did not be done that Can way. Can a
1: Republican win if uh, if uh, without uh, Hispanic votes? Can a Republican win? Uh, you, know, they, you know, if galvanizing African American votes? Hispanic votes them.
2: Uh, I think uh, you know. Uh, I I always, uh, I mean, I I had African American support in my elections in Mississippi. Um, I think Republicans need to uh, try to get uh, Hispanic votes. I think philosophically, uh, they're with us. They're family oriented. They're, they're religious. They work hard. Uh, so we ought to really go after them. Same thing with the Asian Americans. I mean, the very idea that we might uh, lose Asian Americans, ridiculous. And and we ought to, we ought to focus and, and really try hard to to get them, that's one one thing that is lost.
1: 75 25 You can't last do. Election.
2: You just can't do and that, and mainly
1: because of this nativist talk about yeah. immigrants. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, are you concerned about what you hear from Trump on these things? Yeah,
2: and I do think we need immigration reform. That's one of the, t- the two bills that calls me to go ahead and retire from the Senate. I was uh, helped coordinate the effort to pass immigration reform in two thousand seven at the request of President George W. Bush. Right. He wanted me to work on the process and procedure to get it to the floor. And, uh, you know, I do think we should secure the border. I don't like a wall. I think we should do it with virtual uh, or, you know, technology. Uh, but I think think the
1: chances of getting the Mexicans to pay for
2: a while, Uh, well, not very realistic. I don't believe, but I also think we need to have a guest worker program. And I also think we have to deal with those that are here, give them a path to to, uh, a legal existence. But we lost that boat in 2007 and I was in the well of the Senate working, trying to get the boats with Lindsey Graham from South Carolina, John Kyle from Arizona, two conservative Republicans, Dianne Feinstein, Ted Kennedy, and Harry Reid. And it lost. You know Why? Because Republicans were coming in and voting against it because uh, Rush Limbaugh had labeled it amnesty. And Democrats were coming in and voting against it, including Barack Obama, because Labor didn't like it. And down she went. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a perfect bill, but it was getting better. We were amending it. Just think how different it would be today if we had passed that bill in 2007. And by the way, I got three death threats, one of which we turned over to the FBI because it was serious enough. Uh, because I was trying to get a result to a problem we have in America. In fact, I tell people in my home state, I said, "Look, this is not even just about illegal immigration. Our legal immigration system is ridiculous. If you got something to offer America, like if you're a physician in Canada and you would like to come to America and go to in a remote area of Mississippi, you would think you're trying to get who, who uh, Sudan, uh, Sudan, uh, whatever his name is, who uh, uh, anyway, some terrorist in here." Uh, I work one time to try to get a a woman physicist from Sweden to come in for a specific program, and it took me three months. So we need to look at immigration realistically. Well, as a son of an immigrant, I agree with you. Yeah. Well, we're all sons of immigrants.
1: Let me just say this. Um, You know, I been around i've loved politics all my life and i believe in it i believe in it as the way that we create. i I know you do and uh i buy what you and uh, senator daschle are uh talking about but it strikes me that at least within the republican party um that you are sort of the poster child (laughs) for what they're a lot of these folks are running against. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, you, you you were you were a life lifelong member of Congress, someone who was willing to make compromises, sure. cut deals to get yeah, things done. Sure, you're a lobbyist now. Yeah, you're you're like you're like the poster oh, child.
2: Yeah. yeah, I'm I'm a, probably would be identified now as a a uh, 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 mainstream uh, uh, moderate establishment compromiser. Now, what I want to know is, when did that all happen? Because like if you'll check my voting record, it was always conservative. I always was right of center. I was never in the center or left of center. But I also, like on Bush's first tax cut, we wanted more in that tax cut. We wanted, I don't remember the numbers, but let's just say for the sake of the discussion, we were trying to get like over 1.2 trillion in tax cuts. And then Olympia Snow, a Republican, started to work with my friend John Bro when it was a 50-50 Senate and I was going to lose it. So I had to negotiate on behalf of the administration and the Republicans in the Senate with John Bro and some moderate Republicans, and we wound up getting a tax cut of about $900 billion. Now, where I'm from, that's a pretty good compromise deal. We didn't get $1.2 plus trillion, but we got $900 billion. And And did we leave a little money on the table and tax cuts? Yeah. Did we make some changes in the way it was designed? Yeah. I thought that was uh, good for the economy and good for America. Yes, But that made you a (laughs) left-winger.
1: You know, you see it on the Democratic side, too. You hear a lot of people on the left who still uh, castigate the president because uh, he didn't get a public option in the Affordable Care Act. There would have been no Affordable Care Act if he had insisted on that point. So it's the same argument on the
2: other side. Yeah. But you know, I I used to say that I. But it I didn't, seems a little more vir, virulent on your side. Oh of yeah, right it does. And I used to say I didn't come to Washington to, to make a statement. I came to try to make a difference. Uh, yeah, I like earmarks. By the way, Tom Dash and I uh, urged that earmarks uh, be put back uh, in. You need a process to control them and, and yeah. have them transparent. But uh, I was I was Congress one of the people said get rid of them, and I've rethought that yeah. position. Oh, yeah. Well, really today it was do. announced that the administration is going to be announcing eight hundred billion dollars uh, in uh, infrastructure projects. They're going to be earmarking them. Mm-hmm. The administration, the Congress has ceded that response, uh, that opportunity. But now, you know, wh- why do I have that attitude? Uh, I'm, I was from one of the poorest states in the nation. Right. I, got, uh, I What understand. kind of a senator would I have been for my poor state of Mississippi if I hadn't worked? to get money for the the bridge across the Mississippi River at Greenville, Mississippi, to get water uh, funds for Macon, Mississippi, where they had rust in the bottom of the vial that came out of their uh, faucet, uh, to work with agriculture to keep uh, you know our economy strong. Uh, that's, that's the kind of thing that I did. I admit it, and I'm proud of it. Yeah. Uh,
1: what do you think the prospects of putting this all back together again? What do you think the process that we get through? I mean, we've been through... Really, really serious well, yeah. times of division in this country. We had, after yeah. all, a civil war. Yeah. We've had people well, beating it, other members of Congress on yeah. the floor of
2: the Senate. We yeah. haven't seen that yet. No, no, I have great faith that this too shall pass and we shall uh, gain control of things again. Tom and I in the book talk about the history all the way back to the very founders. It was not easy between Jefferson and Adams and Madison and, and the Adams crew. And we yes, had this award. Not to already. mention Burr and Hamilton. But uh, here I always like to end up uh, on on a positive note. And, you know, this, this is still the greatest form of government the minds of men has ever conceived. Uh, it is special because we are committed to a set of principles, not to a set of people. Uh, and I also look look, the members of Congress, Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal, socialist, progressive, whatever they are, they know the American people are not happy with them. But they're not getting the stuff done that needs to be done. They're reading the poll numbers. And when I look at the next generation of leaders, on both sides of the aisle, on both sides of the Capitol, I can't guarantee you they will be better, but they will be different. And I think uh, they will begin to turn this... this, uh, Ship a state around again. Now, quite often in America, we are a nation of crisis. Every time we think we're fixing to do something domestically, something happens internationally. It pulls us together. Mm-hmm. Uh, the highest ratings the Senate ever had was in the aftermath of 9-11. You know why? Because we had been hit. We unify when we get hit. But also they saw the Congress working together on a bill after bill after bill to help recover, to help New York City, to help the airlines, to help us get over that attack, and to try to make sure we wouldn't have another one. We created the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, so I'm not advocating a crisis. Yeah, that'd be a tough way to go. But, uh, I, I think you will, there will be an event that will begin to turn us around.
1: But you have written a book called Crisis Point, and it's worth, and it's worth reading, and I hope you're, your uh, forecast for the future uh, comes true, and uh, we'll see you, uh, what, at the Trump inaugural next? Or, uh, Well, I've been to an up inaugural for <laughs> both parties, so I don't know what
2: I'll be going to uh, inauguration, no matter who it is. Yeah.
1: All right. Senator Trent Lott, thanks so much okay, for your time. Thank you Great you. to be with you.
0: Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.